0: you're listening to future thinking from stylus the show where our analysts alongside industry thought leaders unpack the big trends you need to know about find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com
1: hello and welcome to future thinking from stylus i'm your host christian ward head of multimedia strategy at stylus Today we're going to be talking about solving one of the biggest issues of our time, how to make sense of the world when news, journalism, and communication in general has become toxic and divisive. A big issue, and to discuss this, I'm joined by Lindsay Waking, investigative strategist at research firm Nonfiction. Thank you for joining me. First of all, it would be great to hear about nonfiction, the work you do, and your research methodologies.
0: Yeah, hey Christian, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, Nonfiction was co-founded by Ben Zidler and Gunny Scarfo, and I feel like we're like kind of a confluence of like the research worlds and the strategy worlds, that Ben was global head of CPG at Scott Galloway's firm at L2, and then went into Gartner. Gunny had a background in Vice Media, and before that, a digital agency that eventually became Accenture. I came from kind of the world of journalism, anthropology, and then strategy and research, and, and I think kind of our shared... I guess like a burning passion is to really uncover what we call like uncensored insights, meaning insights into people's lives that they may not tell their friends. And they are certainly not telling market researchers as Gunny likes to say, you know, you don't have a lot of people who are pausing in the middle of a market research conversation to be like, excuse me, can I bring you my diary? Like, let me tell you the contours of my soul. And in a lot of ways like not getting that sort of stuff in research should scare the shit out of people who are spending millions of dollars to make large decisions off of research, that we're getting at this kind of filtered, often fake version of reality and how people make decisions and how they really feel because the ways in which we're conducting research. So I think at nonfiction, we kind of set out to figure out, is there a more rogue approach that we could take in order to get something that feels more real and true to how people really think and live and make decisions? And so we kind of do that in two ways. I think the first way is really finding more like intimate ways to make connections with people we're studying. Like, How do you create the environment which people can feel like they can be honest with you. Uh, There's such a formality and a professionalism to most market research that I think keeps real life outside of the room. And the second way is just going wherever it takes to understand what people's real experiences are. So we have gone unchaperoned into prisons. We've spent time with male and female escorts trying to understand intimacy. And we've talked to dads coming out of rehab, talking about like how to how to come back as a father and how to, how to become more involved in your kids' lives. We've interviewed bank robbers and built software programs. So we kind of, we love to just go wherever it's going to take to get something that feels real and true and, and new.
1: Amazing. So, I mean, give if you could give a quick flavor of some of the recent research reports you guys have released. We're going to be talking about one in particular, but you, you've also been um, putting out some really interesting stuff about Spotify, for example, and, and playlists and and, uh, and more. So if you could give a quick sort of overview of, of the other work you've been doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Last fall, we put out a big piece called America's Secret Playlist that was on Essentially the question, the research question was like, what could you learn about Americans if you could look at their peer inside their playlists? And the big finding there was just to the extent how many people use music playlists to hunt really deep and dark emotional experiences that we don't normally talk about. And we use that to kind of tee up what we feel like there's this this burgeoning desire for more emotional realism in both our personal lives, but even from the work brands create and and the, the environments we inhabit every day. So that was a big piece. We launched the company off of a piece called The Secret Financial Lives of Americans, which was really about like, what is the real real on how we feel and handle money? And what do people want from financial institutions that they're not getting today? And so I feel like a little bit of our like accidental niche specialty had become people's secret lives.
1: Fantastic. So... The the piece that we are going to talk about today is your latest research, Saving Americans from the News. And I, I've read it, and it's very interesting. There's lots to sort of to get your teeth into, and I, I want to talk about lots of different aspects of it. But to start with, I'm interested where, at the, the, the beginning of the report, you say you came at the issue from the angle of, what is hurting Americans' ability to make sense of the world and what can we do about it? And you said that that was a slightly different approach to news and journalism than than has been taken by perhaps other commentators on this issue. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about what inspired that approach.
0: Yeah, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's funny, I went to school for journalism and I dropped out because I was just like, I, like, I cannot, I just felt like the way my brain worked was not what the industry wanted at the time. And I think when when I've spent a lot of time reading what you see is that, you know, a lot of people tackle it from their own discipline. And so they ask the question of like, what is broken in the news or how to fix the incentive structure of the system or how to how to just like, you know, a lot of it's very inside baseball of people who, you know, have been in the field for decades and have a brilliant perspective, but they're coming at it more from kind of the principles and discipline of journalism. So we want to kind of flip that and say, You know, as someone who is an outsider, like we're not journalists, this is not our area of expertise, but we do know people. How can we come from like the bottom up and say, what is getting in the way of people's ability to make sense of the world? And I I liked that because it's not about, we're in a time when like the way we make sense of the world has been so democratized that. We're all kind of journalists for each other, you know. Like my aunt on Facebook and some stranger on Twitter, and Joe Rogan all have the, like are all at the same level of influence <laughs> as uh, you know as as professional journalists in the New York Times and people who've cut their teeth in the profession. And so we wanted to really acknowledge that reality, kind of at the at the root of the of the investigation.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, we talk a lot about that on Stylus about this democratization of, of creativity, particularly in journalism with things like Substack and so on. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of interesting data that you've pulled out from, from this research. I'd love to talk briefly through some of it. The first one, 50% of Americans are frustrated by perceived bias from the left and right. So this is not you know, a leftist problem or a right problem specifically, half of Americans feel like there's a problem with both sides. So, you know, I think a lot of people who may consider themselves either one or the other would find that surprising because, you know, you sort of have your position, you have your ideology, and you see the manipulations from the other side. But most Americans just think that everybody is, you know, every every outlet is is contributing to this toxic environment.
0: Yeah, and I I was blown away by it. Like when we walked into this, I I think I had the perspective that we all do, that like the cliche that we all had become these like bloodthirsty partisans who were just screaming at each other from our camps. But I think when you talk to real Americans, when you got off Twitter, when you started to have opening conversations with real people, you found that people are fucking fed up with it all. You hear that, you hear that in their frustration that even even the outlets on their side um, or their side, if they have a side, are disappointing them too. And it's it's interesting. You would hear people, there was always this like tone of desperation in people's voice. Like, I just have nowhere to go to get information that actually makes it feel like I can make sense of the world. And people feel like they're being pummeled on, on every side. And we call the problem, or what, what Americans are experiencing, this like bias from both sides, uh, narrative warfare. And that's a term that's used by some like evolutionary philosophers, but also counterterrorism experts. And the idea of narrative warfare is that most of the information we receive is not really a good source of sense making. It is kind of propaganda for some agency. And by agency, we don't necessarily mean like some nefarious force, but it's it's individuals who have ideas that they're trying to communicate. And so their primary agenda is not to help you make sense of. The whole world of ideas and how that idea fits in with the rest of them, it's to advocate for you to for you to kind of take away something very specific. And so, if that's the kind of news environment, we wanted to look at what impact is that having on people? And it's huge. You know, people people talk about the news; they talk about it like an addiction. I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of a the most socially acceptable form of addiction, right? And they talk about how it's tearing their relationships apart. Even the way people use news is not like information. It's almost like a weapon. You know, 20% of Americans told us that they've sent a news article to someone just to agitate them. Like it's become this uh, this little weapon we can use. And it's having like a huge impact of our relationships. 30% of people say it's strained or ruined a relationship. And the stories you hear are heartbreaking. Like this isn't like, you know, casual friendships that have broken up. This is families that are being divided. This is couples that are driving each other mad. This is friends who can't talk anymore. And there's a really intense feeling of loneliness that you hear from people that you just can't talk about things anymore. And it's kind of like breaking down the one thing we have in the world, which is our bonds with each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, that 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 statistic, particularly 30% feel like it strained their relationships, was was very surprising to me, because that really is very high. And obviously, okay, so we're going to get to sort of what we do about this terrible situation in a moment, or at least what you guys think we should be doing. But one of the things, one of the most fascinating things from the research that I found was the chapter on how people feel pressured to pick sides in these debates around the news even if they're not fully committed to a particular ideology even if they don't really believe Uh, what they're arguing for which I found extremely surprising and you the, the the research quotes Girard who points out that those who are left with no side have been singled out as scapegoats as a kind of and you 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 talk about that in terms of why people feel the need to not sort of strike out alone and stick to a position that they really believe in but to sort of join the herd and join the groupthink, even if they're they're not convinced I mean this would this is really fascinating to me I'd love to hear a bit more about
0: this. Yeah. Yeah. It was so interesting. I remember one of the earliest conversations I had with people because we did a lot of interviewing for this and it was a man and he told me, you are the only person I can talk about this with. And he said, when I post on social media, it's a lie. Like I will often just like post an article or post a position that reflects what I think I should be saying or what I think my community wants from me because I have this like fear of being called out he's like but I have so many other questions and you heard that from people you like we had another brilliant quote about a whole group chat it was around the time of Black Lives Matter debating whether posting a black square was racist or not racist and they were just like I just don't want to be seen as racist and so you get this idea that it's it's about being seen as something right and I think it was 27 percent of Americans said they've secretly doubted a political or social stance they've taken publicly. 29% of millennials so that they posted on social media just so someone wouldn't think they were on the wrong side of an issue. And so beliefs are these little like, like memes that we use to telegraph our identity and to telegraph a side and to have a sense of belonging. And there is such this like frenetic fear that if you don't do that, you're somehow gonna be punished or left out. And I think that was so what was so brilliant about the Rene Girard idea. He came up with this idea he called Mimetic or mimesis, memetic desire, which was that most of our behavior is based on imitation; that we are kind of all imitating each other in these subconscious ways, and a lot of that's hardwired into us. Like we are, we are social beings; we are designed to create social connections between people, and that form of imitation is a way to create connection between us. But when you have it on this, this scale and on these issues, it creates this like freneticism. And someone once described the landscape to me during this project as a a snowplow. And so they were like, which is kind of get what he's getting at where it's like a snowplow where if you're standing in the middle, you just get run over. Otherwise you get pushed to one side or the other. And that idea that like, people who don't take a side become scapegoats is this like fear that you see in people that I think is is they're afraid of being called out they're afraid of being bad people they're afraid of being on the wrong side of an issue and you see it on both sides you know on on the left they're afraid of being racist on the right in in the U.S. right now there's a lot of issues around like Democrats being pedophiles and so they're afraid of being thought of as pedo lovers (laughs) So it's on both sides. You have these like crazy fears of being perceived as a bad person that would, you know, make you socially ostracized or cause people to reject you. And so people just pick a side and throw things out. And I think we can't underestimate that emotional pressure to pick a side. During, during the Capitol, the storming of the Capitol in the U.S. at the beginning of January, there was this interview with a, a boy, a teenage boy um, whose father had stormed the Capitol And it was, I remember the quote he said, because it was so striking. He said that before his father went to storm the Capitol, the last thing he told him was to choose a side or die. And I was like, that's what people feel. Even sitting at home on their computers, getting on Facebook, that feeling that you have to pick a side or somehow you're at threat is, is driving us to commit to things that we don't fully understand or even fully believe in. Just to just to have that, like, sense of of safety and belonging.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's quite pronounced when you talk about social media, and I think that's something that I want to sort of come back to in a moment. But first of all, I mean, let's talk a little bit about what we can do about this, because it is, you know, clearly from your research, it it is a massive problem and it's destructive. So... The the sort of solution that you come to in the research is something that you call the fair play test. And I'd love to hear about how you designed this and why you think it can address some of these challenges that we've been discussing.
0: Yeah. So we were looking looking for some kind of like litmus test that could help people in a lot of different situations, almost like essentially kind of inoculate Americans against narrative warfare. And that's a tough thing to do because I think there's... There's a little bit of like, I think there's some misconceptions about what the real problem is. Like we've become obsessed with this idea of like fake news and it's a war of facts, but it's not really a war of facts. It's a war over the meaning of information. And so when you look at what are the ways in which the meaning of information gets corrupted um, and like the stories we tell, tell incomplete stories, there were kind of like three hallmarks of narrative warfare that we saw. The first one was like contextless arguments. So making an argument without context of the rest of the world of ideas, uh, demonization of the other and pressure towards extreme certainty. So those were kind of like, those are the problems that we need to solve for. And so we set out to design a test that that would help Americans do a couple of things. One, judge people's credibility in a way that wasn't based off of political stances, or even necessarily like expertise in an area. Like how do you actually judge what someone's saying based on the content of what they're saying, not based on what they believe or who they are. The second one was to, to create a set set of like shared standards that like, if communities who wanted to debate ideas and to get into real conversation and to take each other seriously, what is a litmus test that they could use to kind of hold each other accountable to a better way to exchange information? And so we developed what we called the fair play test, like you said, and it has three parts. And we wanted to keep them as simple as humanly possible. The first one is showing empathy for those you disagree with, and I think empathy is kind of like an overused phrase right now. It's a little, it's it's cliche, like it's overused but under practice. And I think there's also like a lot of misunderstanding about what it means. Like empathy is not validating someone's beliefs. Empathy is not giving people hugs or showing sympathy. It's getting inside the experience of somebody else. And I think the greatest gift you can give somebody is not to treat them like a political abstraction, but someone who is a complex human being with a rich inner life and has contradictions and doubts the same way you do. And so and so, kind of what we think about this as when you show empathy for people you disagree with, you take the pain of everyone involved seriously. And you're willing to look at the issue from their side and understand what pain is driving them to believe what they believe or to say what they, they say. And from there, you can... You you just address the person in the issue from a very different place. So that's kind of number one, show empathy for those who disagree with. And number two is what we call steel manning arguments. So I had not known about steel manning walking into this project. It's a, it's a technique that we learned. And I think a lot of people know about what we call straw manning, which is to attack like a deliberately misrepresented version of an argument. It's so essentially like paraphrase your opponent's argument in a way that's a little bit bullshit and then tear it down, which is often not fair because that person when that air action would be like, that's not really what I was saying. Steel manning is the opposite. It's to find or build the strongest possible version of an argument before you challenge it. And even when you're confronted with someone who's maybe giving you a claim based on low quality information, like help them raise that, like go find the strongest version of their argument for them and then show them why it's not valid. Like that is kind of the highest, I feel like gift you can give someone and also like a sign of respect. And so the the question we ask is, did you present the strongest version of an argument in a way that someone who holds that belief would be satisfying before you countered it? Because it just helps raise the whole level of conversation. And the last one may seem cliche, but I think it's like completely invaluable, which is normalizing doubt that the way in which we talk about things has so much certainty and so much arrogance. And these are issues that are complicated, that are that have been complicated. They're like a lot of them are moral conundrums we've dealt with since the dawn of time. And we tend to walk in and say there was a right answer and there was a wrong answer. And what that does to people is it doesn't leave people space for them to grapple with it, because the minute something happens, they think they have to take a stance and stand by it. And so I think the way we talk about ideas, the language we use, how we frame them, what we're kind of, the question we'd like challenge you to ask yourself is, did you make it feel safe for people to express doubt, to ask questions, to change their mind? Because that's not the way conversations are going.
1: It's really, it's really interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. My one question I have would be how does this how is this applied in the real world in your in in your opinion? I mean, uh, you give a couple of examples in the research, but it'd be nice just to hear a bit about that. Like, how does it how does it work, you know, in actuality?
0: Yeah, so kind of the first vision we had had for it is, you know, we we would have loved to see and we still would love to see kind of Journalism publications adopting these principles as like an editorial standard. And you know, not all forms of news are going to be able to fit this. This is the this is a kind of news that's meant to be talking about ideas, not necessarily just delivering what happened during the day. But I, you know, I imagine kind of one use case is is like an editorial standards for, for journals and publications, for any kind of outlet that is that is disgusting political or social ideas. But then the other, the other standards are. I think one is a standard for yourself. Like when you are communicating things in the world, when you are making sense of information, I think one of the things that's difficult is trying to figure out like, who can you trust? Because it's like everything is a dog whistle for everything else now. You know, you have like, even now have publications popping up as like free thinker publications. But when you get into them, you're like, this doesn't feel like a free thinker publication. And so the way everyone's branding everything makes it impossible to tell credibility. I think you can only really tell credibility through the meat of the argument, like how someone's presenting information. And so what is a way to judge that that presentation of information? And so I use it myself. Like I, whenever I'm reading a New York Times article or an Atlantic article or, you know, Anything, I ask myself, like, did the author do these three things? And then when I'm engaging in conversations, like, am I doing those things? And so I think that's kind of the other use cases, is, is you know, when you're when you're at a barbecue with your aunt and she's like spouting off about someone, like you can be like, Hey, like, you know, what would it look like if we were to actually like show empathy for that person? Or what would it look like if we were to steel man that argument? And then the last use case is, I mean, I would love it to teach this in schools, like it it becomes a Kind of a media literacy curriculum that isn't isn't just about looking at sources, or it's about really helping people to understand what does it look like to create arguments and talk about ideas in a way that's honest and fair. And and again, like it's you know everything from like podcasts to Joe Rogan to you know when you're. When you're reading things online, I think it's a, it's a filter to put all of that through and potentially like, like you could imagine a subreddit being like, Hey, we're a subreddit to like discuss ideas, but we're like, we are going to use the fair play test. That's how we moderate this discussion. So I think even using it as kind of like a moderation standard within communities who are seriously trying to kind of engage with each other.
1: Yeah, actually, it's interesting you mentioned Reddit because a couple of episodes ago I interviewed Ian Leslie about his book Conflicted, mm. which touches on some of these same issues. And in that book, he talks about a particular Reddit, Reddit sub-forum called Change My Mind. And mm, it's essentially, yeah. you know, people go there to have their minds changed about an issue that they feel quite strongly about. But the, the techniques of the forum are very, very, you know, it's approached in a polite, you know, respectful way. And the moderators make sure that nobody gets you know angry or abusive and so forth so which i think is very interesting but it does um beg the question that will this test have to be sort of moderated and policed to that extent because people won't be arguing in good faith it's a great test if you are arguing in good faith and you have the best of intentions but so many people particularly on social media don't have the best intentions—they're—they're they're either trolling or they're—they're they're just, you know, so entrenched in their own opinion that they could never see beyond it. So, how how do you feel like in that kind of toxic world we could apply this, or how 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 would it work on something like Twitter? Is is, is, is does it go back to I suppose this education issue that eventually we just have to wait for the gen this generation to to move on, and <laughs> the next generation can start to have some more polite conversations.
0: For sure. It's a great question. And I, you know, we're not, I think, naive. Like, I think there are, there are plenty of people who are never going to use this. Alex Jones, never going to use the fair play test. Candace Owens, never going to use the fair play test. (laughs) Your deranged uncle on Twitter, probably never going to use the fair play test. And I think that's just, you know, like, I think there has to be a a real desire to want to get to the bottom of things. But I think that's, that's who this was designed for. And I, I think, like within communities on these platforms that are interested in discussing ideas. It's, it's a tool that they can use. I actually saw someone on Twitter the other day. It was on, it's on the page of a, a woman her names like Chloe Valkyrie. She's great. She's a great thinker. And there was a political discussion happening and someone like steel manned an argument. And then it like, it like led to like a deeper discussion, of the argument. Like I learned something. I was like, I haven't learned something from like a political Twitter thread and <laughs> forever. And so, so yeah, like I think there are always gonna be spaces and people who don't have that, don't have the intention, don't care to argue in good faith. But the problem was before even people who wanted that had nowhere to go and nowhere really to measure or discern what was, what was good and what was bad, and how to how to raise a conversation, even among people who like might be kind of interested in it, but you didn't have a common language to talk about like what makes the fair trade of ideas, and how do you do yeah. that in a kinder way?
1: I think it's interesting for, from that perspective to think about this in a brand context because we've seen stats data over the past few years that as the media trust in media has declined, trust in brands has risen to a certain extent, and particularly as more and more brands are sort of um, embracing purpose and so on, which gets a bad rap from some commentators. But it's it's become important for for brands to sort of show who they are beyond just the, their their commercial me- messaging. So I guess I guess my final question or my final sort of thing to think about would be, as as. Consumers look to to brands more and more as trust trustworthy sources for not just products and sort of community, but also for sort of information and advice as sort of trusted guides to the world in general. Is this something that brands can apply in their own messaging in their own marketing? Is it is it is it something which will work in that context as well? Do you think?
0: It's a typical question because I think in in a lot of ways brands have not up until this point been real arbiters of this conversation more as like a joining voice. And I think when you're a joining voice, you're often joining, not in the context of trying to make sense of the world, but often trying to show support for something, which is, is great. And I think is, can be a very noble thing to do, but it's a different, I think it's a different context when you're trying to help people make sense of the world. And I guess my question is like, as, as brands like as, as they evolve and how they, and what role they're playing in our lives. And they do start to move to this role of arbiters of information and, you know, joining these big social discussions, like once they start actually hosting those conversations versus just joining in on them, I think these are, these are kind of guidelines for how do you do that in a way that is fair and not alienating to an audience who's going to always have a wide variety of views, you know, like that's the, when you take a stand as a brand, you still have to uh, grapple with the fact that there's going to be plenty of customers who don't believe what you believe. And so how do you communicate those beliefs in a way that's maybe not as loaded?
1: Yeah, I think, I think- that's, a, that's a really key point. That's an interesting point in terms of building platforms, especially, with, especially around community, which we talk about on stylus all the time now. It's like, you know, community needs to be at the heart of, of brand building now as people sort of we've discussed as people move away a little bit from these big, big social networks that perhaps are too toxic for them they're seeking smaller more more private safer places to 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 congregate online so we talk about how there's a place for brands there to start building those those places and those platforms so i guess you're right in in that context when brands are starting to sort of gather uh consumers into communities these are useful tools to use to make sure that that interaction stays civil and, uh, and non-toxic. So that's, so that's great. I think everybody can, can take that away from, from this conversation and, and probably apply it to the, to the sort of social interactions that they're building around around their brands. Now, before we end, I have three quick fire questions that I ask every guest on this podcast. The first one is, what's the best business or career advice you've ever been given?
0: Ooh, I think it's take bosses, not jobs. Go find a, a fucking killer boss. Don't, more than you find a job, which has suited me very well.
1: <laughs> How did you manage to do that? without? Did you did you know about Ben and, and everyone beforehand?
0: No, I was actually about to like drop out of the industry. I was in the middle of like a huge existential crisis, like <laughs> didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was on LinkedIn and I saw this like job posting that felt like a love letter to my soul. And I was like, who wrote this? <laughs> And I like dropped everything I was doing and wrote the most insane email of my life uh, that I'm pretty sure like cursed and referenced Insane Clown Posse, which is a band. And yeah, and it it hit. I was like, is this going to hit or is this going to scare them all?
1: The second question, which I guess is sort of, you know, the job that you're doing really, but what's the consumer problem or challenge you don't think has been successfully solved yet?
0: I, this maybe harkens back to the Spotify research, but I think there is this coming... Desire for people to that people want more. What we call like emotional realism in their lives. They want things that reflect what it means to actually like live and die. And we live in a lot of like the a lot of the institutions that archetype our daily lives: brands, governments, nonprofits. Just are constantly reflecting back to us like a very sanitized version of reality. And they're often solving very sanitized problems. And I feel like the next the next challenge is like how do we how do we get more real and how do we kind of Are we able to like reflect people back what life really looks like in a way that's still aspirational and desirable? And how do we create products that are really getting at some of the core problems versus kind of a lot of these problems we make up?
1: A final question is, which individuals or brands do you look to for inspiration in your work? This
0: might be like such an obnoxious answer, but I hate looking at brands for inspiration because, I mean, we we do research. And so I think one of the, I'm always drawn to people who know something about how to live or die. And so, I don't know, Esther Perel, who's like a pretty famous psychotherapist, James Baldwin, Mary Oliver, Gaber Mate, like psychologists, poets, writers know how to talk about the, I think the contradictions of the human experience in a way that teaches us how to talk about those contradictions in even buying behavior, you know, we're full of completely irrational and absurd reasons why we do what we do. (laughs) Uh, And I think when we focus too much on like industry inspiration, we miss, yeah, we miss the ability to learn how, how we actually work from the people who really spend their lives studying, studying humans, which is writers poets and psychologists
1: thank you so much i'd like to thank my guest Lindsay waking and thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode and i'd love to hear your feedback on twitter we're at stylus underscore live and i'm at christian ward and on instagram you can find us at we are stylus join us next time for more future thinking from stylus you've been listening to future thinking from stylus the show where our analysts alongside industry thought leaders unpack the big trends you need to know about Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.